Welcome to the G Spot, the podcast that discusses topics relating to sex, dating, and relationships, with a focus on pleasure, connection, and education. I'm your host, Heidi G, sex and relationship therapist, and I believe we are all entitled to a fulfilling sex life and relationships. The G Spot, the best sex and relationship education you'll ever get. So today I'd like to talk about dating a narcissist. How do you know if you're dating a narcissist? The things that you need to know if you are dating a narcissist. Um, and joining me today um, is my dear friend and an expert in this area, Jackie. Jackie has been a life and business coach, counsellor and psychotherapist in private practice for 20 years. Jackie has practiced as a coach both in Sydney and London. For the past 10 years, she has specialized in psychotherapy, uh, working with complex trauma and complex PTSD. She has done some extensive training both in Australia and in the US. Jackie uses brain-based therapies such as EMDR and brain spotting to effectively rewire clients' brains and nervous systems so they are able to put the past in the past and live more in the present. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, Heidi. Nice to speak with you today. So I thought, Jackie, we could start with what is a narcissist? Okay, so I think the concept of narcissism, narcissism and what is a narcissist is very much um, misunderstood. We kind of think that it's just somebody who's self-absorbed and I think probably over the last 10 years with the advent and increase of social media, we've kind of taken it into people who are self-absorbed and like taking selfies, Mm. Um, but it runs, it really runs much deeper than that. Um, And like with um, sort of introversion and extroversion, it, it runs on a spectrum. So there are different types of narcissists, mm-hmm. um, and so I'll briefly talk about that today. And you can have somebody who's just high or low or medium in narcissistic traits to something that is actually um, full-blown full narcissistic personality disorder. Um, there is a diagnostic criteria for that. That is the DSM-5. Right. Um, and that is the full kind of blown, uh, you have to have five different criteria. I won't really go into that because it's kind of clinical. I want to keep this more at a level where, you know, a lay lay people rather than going into psychobabble can understand it. Sure. Um, But really, so the different types of narcissists are, I'd say there's, there's probably, you know, anywhere between eight to 13 different categories of narcissists, but the three main categories uh would be you've got your malignant narcissist so that would be somebody like donald trump Mm -hmm. um very clearly narcissistic and malignant narcissists usually lack the most amount of empathy they are very um manipulate manipulative they're calculating they can border on uh sociopathy so they can be malignant narcissists and sociopaths are different yeah uh but they can border on they've got they're they're a lot more aggressive and sadistic and it's it's it tends to be um more overt you can you can pick it okay uh, yeah 
And so the other type of narcissist that we kind of talk about is the vulnerable narcissist. So they can tend to be much harder to pick. It's very, very, they're also known as covert narcissists. Okay. So with covert narcissists, um, they can be, like all narcissists at some level are usually quite attractive, they're very charming, uh, they're very good at manipulating. But with covert narcissists, it's much harder to pick because the abusive qualities are, are very, um, it's very subtle. They can often be very controlling, quietly manipulative. They can often, the, the biggest problem with covert narcissists is they can appear incredibly loving. Right. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I'll talk a little bit more about my own personal story a bit later in, in our chat, but yeah. um I lived with one for 20 years and, you know, like it was very hard to pick, very, very hard to pick until I started doing work on my own brain. Um, So, yeah, I think with covert, with covert narcissists, you know, there's, um, it's, it's really tricky. Um, And a lot of time you could say you're with a covert narcissist and people won't believe you Um, because to the outside world, they can appear so kind and warm and loving. Mm. Um, so it's often what happens sort of behind closed doors and when it's just you with the with the narcissist so they often will not present that way in public right um they often have very very low self-esteem um I mean all narcissists have low self-esteem and they're using ego constructs to cover that up right but in particular with with vulnerable or covert narcissists they have very low self-esteem the the core thing with um malignant um and the other the other other category of narcissists is what they call grandiose narcissists so Mm -hmm. they're often very self-entitled they they display um you know signatures of superiority they think they're better than you intellectually um you know in whatever category it will show up but i think at the core of all narcissists is the core is that you know they have very very low self-esteem um, and you can have a malignant narcissist that's also a vulnerable narcissist. So they can be very self-entitled, very grandiose. Um, they can, um, you know, appear like they've got all, all of it together, but then you'll notice that they get deeply wounded by criticism. Mm-hmm. So there's the vulnerability. Right. So I think there's, there's, there's core traits in all narcissists, but then we split it into categories. Okay. Okay. I, it's so funny you mentioned like vulnerability and narcissism because I would yeah. not have put the two together. Just like um Oh, oh. <laughs> I think that's the core of core of so many so many narcissists are deeply I mean, if you look at it from um a pathological um perspective or a psychological perspective, yeah. They they're so deeply wounded. Um, and damaged, and often I think at a soul level as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we go into kind of more spiritual, spiritual talk, um, yeah. so they the, the only way they can actually cope with their life is to have really strong ego constructs. Okay. Um, and I've noticed that a lot in in when I was working with with um, them doing EMDR or brain spotting is when you start to take away their ego construct, they actually can't cope. Um, and the two core things that I've noticed in my own um, professional and personal experience, and I just want to make it very clear that 
I'm a trained um, psychotherapist, but I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, so I'm not, you know, uh, qualified to diagnose. Yeah. Um, Just because of my own family history, I've done a lot of research into this. I had a lot of personal experience. Um, I could probably write a thesis on it now because I've delved into it so deeply. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, the, the core things that run narcissists is vulnerability and shame. Right. And they will do anything to cover that. So if you look at it from an ego construct perspective, is those ego constructs are there so that you come nowhere near their vulnerability or their shame. Okay. Okay. That's so and often when when they're with people that they feel safe with, that vulnerability will come out. And they often will go to people. Um, I'll talk a little bit later about empaths and narcissists because right. I think that's a really big thing. Um, and yeah, they're often drawn to empathic people because they know their vulnerability is safe with empaths. Okay. It just, I find it interesting. I know that when we spoke ages ago, um, you told me that there were different levels of narcissists, which I just never knew. I just thought you're either a narcissist or you're not. I didn't realize (laughs) there were different levels, but I no. have to, and I guess the reason why I wanted to do this podcast with you is because I'm noticing it more presenting in my private practice. Um, sure. And just with, you know, what my client is telling me about their partner and their experience, I'm thinking, oh, okay, it sounds like you're dating a narcissist, you know, so I, you know, do the, um, ask the right questions and do the, the right checks that I need to and safety checks. And I think sure. that um, with, what I've had presented in my practice is um, the kind of extreme level where, you know, safety is a concern, where, you know, the the sex is quite violent, um, where yeah. there's a bit of shame as well, where the person who's, um, well, my client who's presented in my um, private practice is still questioning whether they go back to the relationship or not because that's all they know. Yeah, um, sure. So, yeah, that's why I thought it would be really great to have you on the show just because, I'm, like I said, I'm seeing it more and more and um, I wanted to um, have you talk There's about this. There's a lot this. of it out there. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of it out there, yeah. And to talk about, you know, what are the signs and what can you do to protect yourself? Okay, so I think the, the signs, um, like when you're dating a narcissist, is there's a term called love bombing. Um, and so, you know, if someone, you know, if someone is, you know, like going at it just so crazily with, you know, all their, um, admiration and, you know, anything that kind of really hooks you in to me, having done a lot of work on myself, having done a lot of healing and look, I am 55. So, um, you know, I'm at that later stage in life to me, really a healthy relationship is about meeting somebody that is calm, mm-hmm. you know, and um, because the problem with attracting narcissists is, and when we're dating narcissists or in relationship with narcissists, is a lot of the time it's based on traumatic bonding. Right. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about that. But, you know, at my age I'm looking for somebody who's calm and, you know, taking my time to get to know somebody, really knowing what that person is like and having, a mo- like, really if you if you narcissists can't do emotional intimacy they will do anything to avoid it but at the start they can hook you in and make you feel like you're the most special person um in the world they'll you know they'll they they can pretend that they want to know everything about you 
Um, and it can feel like, you know, it can feel like that deep soul chemistry connection. So I think if that is happening mm-hmm. is always to stop, take your time, step back, really take your time to get to know the person. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's, it, it can be really tricky knowing if you're dating a narcissist because they have two faces. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes they're, they're really obvious because you will sit across the table at dinner with them and all they'll talk about is themselves like they've got no interest in you at whatsoever Mm. if you come away feeling like uh like that person just didn't want to know anything about me that's a that's a definite red flag but they can be the opposite you know they can be um incredibly charming incredibly um seductive and you know pretend like they want to know everything about you and that's the facade that they present until sometimes 18 months into a relationship is when they start to show their true colours. So it's it's really like how long is a piece of string? Mm. Um, I think if there's a really strong sexual attraction, there's strong um, seductive um, qualities going on, um, if there's any kind of idealisation, if that person's putting you up on a pedestal, because narcissists will often do that, they will put you on a pedestal and it won't take them very long to to um, pull you off that pedestal mm-hmm. um you know and also you've got to really look for you know codependent codependent um traits and the thing that I would say is the biggest thing is you know if you're finding that you're ending up dating a lot of narcissists is to really look at what is the familiarity for you around that um I was listening to an expert on narcissism who's written like I don't know, like a hundred books. He's been studying it for thirty years, and he said, you know, that it's not that you're attracting narcissists. Narcissists for them, it's a it's a game. It's like it'll just be a numbers game. I don't necessarily agree with that because mm. I think, um, particularly in my own private practice and in my own experience and with friends, um, there's usually a familiarity component. Is like if we've grown up, and and a lot of people don't understand. That, I mean, in my case. I'll tell you about my story. Um, it's very, it was very obvious, but mm-hmm. for a lot of people who grow up with covert, covertly narcissistic parents uh, and don't know that they're either or both their parents are narcissistic, mm-hmm. they will be drawn to this energy. And I think in relationships, we are trying to resolve something. There's a yeah. really great book by a guy called Harville Hendricks called Getting the Love That You Want. Yeah. Um, and he talks about, you know, we're drawn to relationships where we're trying to heal or resolve something. And um, for me, I know a lot of a lot of my clients have covertly narcissistic parents and then they've married or ended up in relationship with covert narcissists and they have a really hard time um, really assimilating both concepts, one, that their parent was narcissistic and two, that they've ended up repeating the relationship. Mm-hmm. This is, and I think you know. Um, I know we've only got a short amount of time here, but this is. I'm really passionate about helping people break that cycle of abuse, and it's why you see women often go back to domestic violence. It's because they, it's all that they know, because no, um, yeah. they have such low self esteem as well, and you know they're often financially dependent, they're codependent. Um, so yeah, it's. But I would, you know, and I think. When I did my training around you know, working with narcissists, one of the core things that they mentioned in the training was never believe what a narcissist says, believe what you feel in your body. Mm-hmm. And I would say that to anybody. If something feels off, 
yeah trust your instincts you know you're going to know and most most of my clients who have been married to nurses for a long time have said you know like right in the start I knew there was something not right mm-hmm. and you we kind of override our our body our intuition um knowing you know and yeah so I think um I think yeah those would probably be the you know any kind of self-centeredness you know, bragging and need for attention, any sort of sense of control and manipulation. If you notice any of those things, um, any sense of entitlement, but just really trusting in your own judgment. And I think a lot of it comes from our own self-healing as well. Sure. So you have talked about, um, you know, your clients who have experienced, um, you know, uh, the trauma and you know dating a narcissist have you had many clients who are narcissistic oh god yes when yeah. I left my, when I left my relationship pretty much I would say 70 percent of my client base was narcissistic mm. um because I left I left a relationship with the covert narcissist and then just repeated it through clients um and then I ended up with like professional burnout it took me probably three years mm-hmm. to um, you know, recover from that because wow. they're energy vampires, you know, and um, yeah, they're energy vampires and they drain your energy. And look, there's a lot of debate on whether they can heal or whether they can get better. Mm-hmm. I mean, science says yes, they can. Mm-hmm. It depends on the kind of, there's no research to back up which kind of therapies are effective in treating them. I found working with them from um, a brain perspective is, as I mentioned previously, when you start to take away their ego constructs, a lot of them can't cope. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I noticed too that some of them got better, but their partners ended up being really sick. Um, wow. So I stopped, you know, like physically getting cancer or getting like really serious illnesses and um, I didn't want to keep working with them. So, you know, I think with long-term therapy, the right kind of therapist, um, the right therapy, they probably have some propensity to change, but I think at a soul level they're here to be destructive um, Mm. and change would be very minimal. And I made a decision. I know lots of people um, and quite, I would say for the, sort of 50% of my clients leave the relationships, 50% stay. And, you know, I think you have to make a decision if you're going to be in a relationship with a narcissist, you're going to have to spend your life managing that relationship. Yeah. And that, to me, that is exhausting. Um, and it's like I know for all the work I've done on myself, that's not what I want for my life anymore. And sure. um, and it's a choice that I'm making. But, you know, um, there are, there's lots of literature out there. There's lots of um you know books out there there's lots of articles there's lots of research you know so if you decide that that is the path you're going to take there are lots of ways that you can deal with it it's just a choice that I made uh not to keep doing that yeah yeah and I guess that's why I asked you that question as well like if you've had many narcissistic clients because I guess I was interested in why they would come for therapy and what they were trying to heal as well. Um, I'd imagine that their background or their story has, you know, been quite traumatic, um, which yeah, is... Yeah, a lot of them... Yeah, sorry. No, no, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, a lot of them do have um, kind of like 
there's there's two things. Some of them come in going, I had the perfect childhood and my parents were perfect. Right. And other others can recognize that they've had a lot of trauma. The thing with narcissism is it's usually that they've been idolized, like they're the golden child and they've been abused. Or one can be the golden child and one can be abused. It's like so it's never clear cut. Right. But a lot of the time they come because their relationships don't work. Um okay. and so they're coming because you know, at some level they're, yeah, I, I think the core thing that comes is because at some level like then their relationships at work aren't working, their relationships at home, their relationships with their kids. Um, and some of them, you know, do want to be better people. I think their capacity to do it is is limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just it's life, you know, like in life exists dark and light, you know, so some people are empathic, some people are narcissistic, some people are in between, you know, um, evil does exist in the world, good does exist in the world. And I think I think the core thing with with whenever you're dealing with a narcissist is to live in reality. There's a lot of, they live in a lot of fantasy and people with them can often live in a lot of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think whenever you're dealing with, nar- with anything that, to do with narcissists, you have to always come back to reality. Yeah. Like what's really what is really happening here? Yeah. But yeah, look, you know, people say they don't come to therapy. I didn't find that. Um, but they don't take responsibility for their own healing. They will come to a therapist who they believe, and if the therapist doesn't help them, then it's the therapist's fault. Like oh, they yeah. don't, you know, they they're not good at taking um the, the idea of self-agency or self-responsibility doesn't sit with the narcissist. For them, it's always somebody else's fault. And it's up to somebody else to help them get better. Mm. Why is that? I think that's just the core of narcissists. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. like um, there are people that operate in the world who know, okay, like I have a role in this, do you know what I mean? And I could have done better or, you know, um, I'm not a perfect human being but I make mistakes. I'm okay with my mistakes. It's part of being a fat foot. For them, failure is like it's like, their skin is being burnt because then someone sees that they're not perfect. Um, perfectionism is another big thing about narcissists. A lot of them grow up um, because there's deep shame with um, narcissistic parents have deep shame when their child isn't perfect because mm. it's a reflection of them. So they're often taught that they have to be perfect. Right. Um, and perfectionism doesn't exist. Like there's no perfect life. There's no perfect human beings. We all make mistakes. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we can feel really bad about our mistakes, but it's part of life and it's part of learning and being okay with that. But for them, when they're not perfect, then there's the underlying shame and there's the underlying vulnerability. So, Jackie, you said that um, you've got your own personal experience um, dating a covert narcissist and you spoke very briefly about your parents and your upbringing as well. So tell us a bit more about that. Sure. So, I, um, so I'm kind of I'm biracial. I'm three-quarters Sri Lankan and one-quarter Scottish and I was born in Sri Lanka mm-hmm. and my parents migrated to Australia in the late 60s, like wanting a better life. but. Um, they were both very young, so my my father was twenty one when he married, and my mum was seventeen. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, they had the three of us by the time my mother was twenty two. But I grew up in a family where my father was overtly narcissistic and incredibly violent. So right. the 
I have two younger siblings and so my brother and I were both both born in Sri Lanka. We migrated to Australia when I was three and my brother was like six months old and then my sister came a year to the day of our first anniversary in Australia. So I think because of all the the stress um, of being in a new country, being young, um, having three children, like my dad, my dad's violence was like, I can't even describe the extremities of the violence that we encountered with him. Mm. Um, his father and mother were also personality disordered. So I'd say my grandfather had borderline personality disorder and his my grandmother had um, borderline narcissistic personality disorder. So my grandfather was a pedophile. There was a lot of sexual abuse in our family. I think there's generations of sexual abuse mm-hmm. in my family on both sides, on my mum's side and my dad's side. My mum's dad was narcissistic. Um, so basically we endured, like my dad never really hit us. He was sexually abusing us. And um, But my, the level of beatings that my mother endured was I can't even put it into words. Um, and some of the things that I saw, like no child should ever have to see. So when I was eight, my mum gathered my brother and I from school with my grandmother in a cab and with my younger sister, told us kind of not to say anything. And um, we went to live with uh, a friend of hers from her work. So my mum came from quite a wealthy family but was working in a factory um, this all happened in Melbourne. Anyway, so she left my father, took took us and my grandmother, and we literally went into hiding. And um, basically she got legal custody of us. So this is back in 1973. There was no such thing as a divorce back then. You had to go through separation and then custody first. So she got custody of us and my dad was supposed to take us out the next day. We had to move. We moved out of our home. We moved to a new school. So it was very, it was very distressing. And anyway, he he turned up one night, the night before he was supposed to take us out the next day. And um, they got into a fight. We basically, um, my grandmother took us out of the, we were in this tiny flat, five of us, and took us out, took us to the neighbours and got the neighbour to call the police but my brother decided to run back and he was only five. So I couldn't leave him and I followed him. And unfortunately we witnessed um, our parents murder suicide. So my father stabbed my mother to death. Like I think he stabbed her 17 times and he killed himself with the same knife. So it's horrific. It was, yeah, it was totally horrific. So, um, yeah, so, you know, eight years old, um, I kind of witnessed that. Then, you know, we didn't really know where we were going to live. We um, we were wards of the state. We, like, lots of people were fighting for custody of us. It was awful. And then my grandmother, who I was really close to, my Scottish grandmother, my mum's mum, she actually ended up getting custody of us. But two weeks after the murder-suicide, she had a heart attack. Then she was hospitalised for gallstones. I think three months after um, my parents' death, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So she had lumps in both breasts and had a double mastectomy. And having witnessed, having witnessed what she witnessed, she just 
gave up the will to live, and I, I could totally understand that. Mm. My goodness, that's just so. Yeah, at nine, I was like getting my brother and sister up ready for school. I would feed them in the morning. My grandmother was going through chemo, so I would be bathing her in the mornings. Um, at nine, I'd often have to take time off school to go with her to see specialists or go to the hospital. Um, it was pretty, like, I, when I reflect back on me as a nine-year-old, I shouldn't have had to deal with that. But because I had personality disordered, other grandparents living in the same, we, we moved back to the house where my parents the house that my parents had together mm-hmm. um, and we had other grandparents living with us, so both with personality disorders. And then um, when my grandmother died when I was 10, we lived with my other grandparents for a year and then my dad's sister and her husband and my cousin moved into our house because we had five-bedroom house and they also had personality disorders. So my aunt had um, was narcissistic, that's my dad's sister, and my uncle was borderline and the violence continued until I was 22. So both my cousin and I were beaten till um, I left home at 22 and my uncle would hit my aunt and hit my cousin. He didn't hit my brother and sister, mm. but he was terrifying. So, yeah, it was um, 22 years of <laughs> just the most horrific shit um, you can ever imagine uh, enduring as a human being. My goodness. And it didn't stop there. Um, you were in a relationship as well, right? Well, yes. Yeah. So basically we repeat, we, as I was saying about we repeat what's familiar. So I've been in, in a number of relationships with either women who, because I'm, I'm gay, um, women who are either deeply traumatised or mm-hmm. were narcissistic. So yeah. covert narcissists. Um, yeah. Or yeah, or women on the borderline spectrum who like were cutting or alcoholics um, cheated on me. Um, yeah, so you know, like I've, I've, I think the biggest thing is, you know, a lot of people can go through um, complex trauma and PTSD. You can make complex trauma and PTSD go away, but it's the relational components. Yeah, it's the attachment trauma that's much harder to heal. So. Yeah, for a long time and um, I certainly had no understanding that my relationship of 20 years was with a covert narcissist because I thought she was pretty loving and kind and pretty wonderful until I kept doing therapy and trying to heal and it was when I started doing the brain therapies that my brain started to wake up and I went, hang on a second, uh, it's not just all me because she was very comfortable believing that it was me and I was very comfortable believing it was me because of my history. Yeah. And she hid she hid behind my history. And so I was very committed to my own healing, my own personal journey, um, getting better. So I did, you know, therapy, like therapy after therapy. And um, and when I actually started to do my own trauma work and started having EMDR myself, um, I really started to wake up and go, okay, something's not right here. And mm-hmm. we did four years of couples counselling and in that four years of couples counselling I could actually see how abusive it was and my relationship with her was and the couples therapist got very triangulated by her as the narcissist and um, I felt like I was being abused by both the therapist and my partner and so that was when I decided to walk away. Wow. 
And I really didn't understand narcissism until after I left that relationship. And then I went on a journey of really having to understand it and understand the dynamics in my family Mm -hmm. um, and why I kept repeating this, not only through relationships, but through friendships as well. Okay. My goodness. That's just, I mean, you've told me the story of your upbringing before. Uh, but every time I hear it, I just, I still get blown away. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, um... I know like you've done a lot of work on yourself as well. Um, sure. And I just wanted to ask you um, something I've never asked you before. Um, how are you, is your sister and your brother? Well, it's it kind of makes me sad because, like, they're both, we all turned out to be very high functioning and they're both right. very high functioning, but they have n- never done any therapy. They've never done any work on themselves. And I mm-hmm. think relationally, you know, like, I'm very committed. I think, um, you know, we had a little bit of a chat before the podcast and I was sort of saying mm-hmm. to you, this is the last time I really want to talk about narcissists because. I'm really on a journey at the moment about talking, like really focusing on love and happiness after trauma, you know. Sure. Um, And I want my next relationship to really be based on love and healing and um, happiness, not on, you know, repeating the patterns of the past. But I think for the saddest thing for my brother and sister will be that they've never really been in relationships and I don't think they ever will be. Mm-hmm. And that really saddens me. So I think that's the way it's affected them the most is that. Yeah. At a soul level, they didn't choose a healing path. I'm really grateful that I did. Um, so if you look at them out in the world, you know, they both have good jobs and, you know, they live in nice houses and, you know, they're okay. They've got good friendships and stuff. But I think from a relational perspective, it damaged them a lot. Yeah. My sister was really severely neglected and um, I think my brother is just very sort of self-sacrificial. He's like um, he's always trying to fix my aunt and uncle, especially, you know, my uncle's got a lot of um, medical issues and personality issues based on his personality disorder and my brother's trying to, you know, and that's what I kind of wanted to talk about, you know, maybe as we finish up is about empaths and narcissists and how empathic people are always trying to save the souls of narcissists and um, they don't get very far. But um, I think my brother's kind of, I think he felt a lot of guilt because he was the apple of their eye and he was very spoilt by them. So he would see the three of us girls like beaten or neglected and I think he felt a lot of guilt about that. Yeah, yeah. What's the relationship like with your brother and your sister? Uh, with my brother, really good. He and I get along really well and um, I think he always feels like he can be very honest with me. Mm. Uh, my sister, not so great, you know, like um, we were very close growing up and I kind of played like a mother role to her. Mm. Um, she was very severely neglected being the youngest and, um, you know, my cousin and I kind of looked out for her and I think I think she felt really abandoned when I left home at 22, like I moved from Melbourne to Sydney, but I was being beaten every day and I just couldn't, I couldn't bear it. And I think I carried a lot of guilt for a long time about abandoning her. But um, I think because of all the neglect and neglect is very hard to heal from, uh, we don't have like, you know, we're civil to each other and we talk to each other, but we, the bond between us, there's something 
I think she thinks I have it easy. I don't think she kind of really understands that, you know, I've had to put in a lot of work to have the kind of life that I have now and um, it hasn't just come easily. But I think sometimes she thinks that my life is very easy compared to she's very much in that trauma and that struggle mentality sure. and doesn't know how to get out of that. Um, so, yeah, and the sad thing is, you know, you can't pathologise. Well, you can pathologise your family and your friends, but it's not really your role as their sibling or as a friend to help people to heal, do you know what I mean? You can be by an example, but people have to choose to do their own work. Yeah, of course, definitely. And that's, you know, like knowing, you know, your story and, of course, you know, being friends and just, you know, building a friendship with you, I know some of the work that you have put in on your own healing and your own journey and I take my hat off to you because it's just amazing like you have come so far and it's just it's amazing well but you know the thing was I think I was always in my family and I went I don't belong to this family because I don't want to live like you and I can't be like you and I'm not like you so I really did the work on myself and I think this is the thing about self-responsibility and it's like those things shouldn't happen to people. Unfortunately, they do. Yep. We do live in a world where there is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of trauma around and horrific things do happen. But, like, I did it because I wanted a different life. I walk around and I'm with people and I go, you don't have to live with anxiety. You don't have to live with constant depression. Um, you know, and I'm not aiming for a perfect life because I don't think there is such a perfect life. It doesn't mean you'll never get down or never get stressed or never be anxious or depressed, but it doesn't have to be, I think it's become the norm in our society these days, you know, and yeah. I think I do the kind of work that I do and I run workshops and um, I'm very passionate about teaching people about their brain and, you know, neuroscience and spirituality and because I go, you don't have to live that way, you know, and I'm living proof that you can have a different kind of life and but I did it because I didn't want, I didn't want to keep repeating the patterns and I didn't want the life that I grew up with. I wanted yeah. a different life. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, Jackie, do you have any recommendations on resources if people want to find out more information? Sure. So um, I was listening to a really good podcast this morning just kind of as a refresher. There's a guy called um, Keith Campbell and he's just written a new book called The New Science of Narcissism. Mm-hmm. Um you can listen to his podcast on Sounds True. Uh, so Tammy Simon's Sounds True, you can go to that podcast. But this guy's been working with narcissists for like 30 years, done a lot of kind of research. Um, I mean, there's lot, there's lots out there. I mean, one of the good things that he was saying is he thinks because of the pandemic and maybe because of Trump, people are losing interest in narcissists because the reality kind of TV lifestyle is starting to lose its um it's kind of shine a bit, which I, he thinks is a good thing. So do I. Yeah. Um, there's there's lots of stuff out there, and um, you know maybe what I can do is like send you a list of different resources so that if people want to contact you, you can kind of pass that on. Yeah. Perfect. Um, but also, um, one of the last things I kind of wanted to talk about is the link. I, I would just even Google this. Um, the toxic link between empaths and narcissists because Mm -hmm. empathic people are really drawn to wanting to save the souls of narcissists and it doesn't work they end up 
like often with health issues, they often with end up with really low self-esteem. And what I've noticed too is that a lot of empathic people end up like acting out the narcissist traits. So because they start to confuse their needs with their narcissistic partner's needs, the empath's emotional needs have never really been met um, and, they, you know, they start confusing their partner's emotional needs with their own and they start to seem selfish. So sometimes someone who isn't necessarily narcissistic but is an empath acting out the narcissist, it can get very confusing because they will appear narcissistic and I've encountered that a lot with friends. Wow, it's so complex. It's such a complex it's, area. It's so complex. I mean, talking about it for like 45 minutes or whatever, we're just skimming the surface. So, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's why I probably researched narcissism for, you know, like six years straight, like reading every book, reading every kind of article that I possibly can, just so that I could understand it in order to not keep repeating it. Um, yeah. yeah, so as I said, I'll I'll send you a, um, I'll just email you a list of resources that you can pass on to anyone who contacts you. Um, but, yeah, I think this guy, he really seemed to know his stuff. I just kind of noticed, though, with people who have spent a lot of time with narcissists, they become a bit blasé about it and, um, you know, obviously because he's been researching it for, for 30 years. I can't be around them and not have it impact me. I think um, there's another woman called Wendy Bahari who wrote a book called Disarming the Narcissist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's been working with them for 25 years. She has a lot of compassion and empathy for them. But I noticed in a webinar that I watched with her that she had a wig. So I was wondering whether she's actually got cancer or alopecia or something. So, um, you know, I'm just kind of wondering, like, how is that impacting her health um, that she's ended up, you know, wearing a wig in in that webinar that I saw with her. But, um, you know, she's done a lot of work with, with narcissists. So there's lots of kind of handbooks out there. Um, I think this guy, um, Keith Campbell, he wrote a book called The Handbook of Narcissism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, books like that, if you really want to understand it. But, I mean, there's there's lots of stuff out there. It's easy to find. There's lots of articles on Google. But if you know that you're an empathic person, I would definitely start looking at how do you break that link That because there's a natural attraction because narcissists are drawn to empaths right. and empaths are drawn to narcissists. So you really have to kind of do your own healing to break that and break that codependency. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your story and for sharing your knowledge today, Jackie. It's just been amazing. Thank you so oh, my much. My pleasure. Buddy. Yeah, I just kind of, you know, I said I think for me personally I'm on a different tra- um trajectory now but you know if this if someone listens to this podcast and it helps them um and the one thing you know I'll probably end with is don't ever think that you're crazy because narcissists have the ability to make you feel like you're going crazy so if your gut instinct is telling you something is off believe it you know believe your gut instinct believe yourself don't doubt yourself because they do have the capacity to really make you feel like you're the problem you're too sensitive, um, I'm not doing what you think I'm doing, you know. So a lot of my clients often say to me, I feel like I'm going crazy. So if you feel that way, then odds are that you're, you know, with somebody who's narcissistic. So my biggest recommendation is do your own healing, build your own self-esteem, 
work on your own um, issues around codependency and work towards being in a healthy relationship. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow me on social media at Heidi G Spot and check out the website at HeidiGCounseling.com. Join me next time on the G Spot because the world is a better place when there's great sex and relationships.